Hey, hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 34 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm really excited to bring you today's episode on healthcare simulation. To learn more about this burgeoning field, we invited Dr. Ryan Bridges to come talk with us. In addition to being director of research at the Allen Waters Family Simulation Center, Dr. Bridges is a health professions educator with a professorship in technology-enabled education at St. Michael's Hospital. In our conversation, we discussed the concept of health professions education, the process for putting simulations together, and the level of evidence required for translation of healthcare simulation research to policy and patient care. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends and let us know what you think on social media at Raw Talk Podcast. All right, here's Dr. Bridges. All right, welcome to the show, Dr. Ryan Bridges. I'm happy to have you. I'm really looking forward to learn more about healthcare simulation. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to do this. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say and share some of my thoughts. <laughs> well, why don't we start off by having you give us your background? Because after taking in like your work, your Twitter feed, and you know, your appearances on other podcasts like Simulcast, mm-hmm. for, for those who are listening, that's a podcast about healthcare simulation research. Uh, shout out Simulcast. <laughs> but, you know, after taking in all that, it's really obvious that you're really into your field. So could you tell us how your relationship with healthcare simulation started? Yeah, sure. So I think it was not traditional, but I, I also think a lot of people's academic journeys are not traditional and by happenstance and luck in yeah. a lot of ways. So my luck started, I did an undergrad in kinesiology and I had at the time started to think about medicine as a career but then also worked with a few researchers and one of them worked with another researcher who had i was told is a kinesiologist but who was doing surgical learning Mm -hmm. i was like what the heck is that that sounds (laughs) ideal because here i was wanting to get more research experience but also wanting to you know really get exposed to the the medical field And I was particularly interested in sports medicine and orthopedics, and I learned that it was largely orthopedics as well. So I really pursued that heavily and Mm -hmm. fortunately was selected as a research apprenticeship that eventually turned into my master's. Now, the apprenticeship was at Surgical Skills Center at Mount Sinai Hospital, Mm -hmm. which is affiliated with U of T. And I worked with Adam Dubrowski there, who eventually became my master's and PhD supervisor here at IMS. Okay. And yeah, just started to do both research that was relevant to understanding how we control our movements and how our brain integrates different sensory information. But then at the same time was doing these more applied practical projects in in surgical simulation and understanding how I could apply the learning principles from kinesiology, motor learning, motor control into that field. And it was really nice because at the time I felt like some kinesiology research and research in general was so basic that I wasn't able to apply things. Yeah. And so surgery and, and simulation, I was applying. Yeah. And, and I really enjoyed that. And eventually it just spiraled into, through my affiliations with where we're sitting now, the Wilson Center. Uh-huh. I did my PhD sitting in this place, doing surgical sim, thinking about self-regulation and being an IMS student. So 
just kind of getting to know people and hearing about the opportunities and innovations that they were creating and, mm-hmm. and trying to capitalize on connections to, to do it for myself as well. Sweet, sweet. Yeah. When we last spoke, you kind of shared a couple of stories when, for example, through your work in motor neuroscience, you went to the Society of Neuroscience and you gave a talk there yeah. and were kind of overwhelmed, but also at the same time you felt that you were unnoticeable. Mm. And this was in comparison to your experiences in the surgical learning program where right. you felt that, you know, everything felt a little bit more palpable, your contribution and so on. Do you want to talk about that and flesh that out? Yeah, I'm yeah. happy to share that. So yeah, as I was deciding, so I had done the master's and really had gotten experience in both neuroscience and surgical simulation and health professions education more broadly. And I realized I want one, one of those two to be my PhD. And I did go to the Society for Neuroscience and there were like 28,000 people. <laughs> and I was, I was very fortunate to be selected as a podium because I was very unknown at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I think still unknown in that community. But yeah, I felt very big and I wondered you know, how do you make connections with people here in such a huge place? And unfortunately, not no one from my research team except myself, even my supervisor who's busy with something. So it was just me who went. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't feel connected at all. And then looking at the health professions education field and, and for your listeners, you know, any field where it's a smaller group and you can get to know people and the networks are easier to manage. And and I found just like the hierarchical people who were like the high level people would still talk to me and yeah. like go for a beer with me and things like that. It's like, whoa. <laughs> uh, and I found it so welcoming. And, you know, ultimately we do in, in the academic world have to make decisions to be strategic sometimes. Like, well, what what am I really going to be able to do with this degree or that degree or with this version of the degree? And, and I really did say for me, smaller group, better networked already, uh, seemingly rather flat hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Wow, isn't that an amazing opportunity? And so I chose to go down that path for those reasons. Those were the principles and kind of variables that I considered in making the decision. Because neuroscience is fantastic and neuroimaging, like it's a beautiful field, but it just, and I'm still very interested, albeit peripherally now. Yeah. So yeah, I think those were some of the things that led me to make that decision. But definitely that one big meeting was like, yeah, (laughs) I don't know how to fit in in this field. And it helped me make my decision. That's awesome. That's awesome. I wanted to unpack, you know, the term health professions education because on your website, you know, it says you're a health professions education scientist. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, when you were when you were having these experiences in in this uh, discipline in this field and getting this exposure, what stopped you from pursuing medicine mm. and and really going into that research education route instead? Yeah, and so that can go back actually for me to the apprenticeship where I did have the opportunity to shadow orthopedic surgeons. And then at the same time, I was obviously shadowing the supervisor because he was <laughs> guiding my work. And so very mindfully, I said, let me see what it's like to live a week in the life of these two. And, you know, what from who you get to work with, what time you have to be at work, mm-hmm. uh, what the tasks are. I eventually kept weighing and, and thinking, you know, obviously I was only exposed to orthopedic surgery and there are so many fields in medicine. Yeah. So I, I, my sample size wasn't so great for all, all you researchers out there. Yeah. But still, I, I felt like the academics route was the right one for me, mm-hmm. having considered all of those things. And very, in a self-interested way, I was still in medicine, yeah. just not being the, the medical practitioner. So yeah. I could still learn about medicine. I could still see how they provide care yeah. and, and understand that care for their patients. Mm-hmm. 
So while I'm, I'm not the one touching them, I am one step removed in studying how they do that so well and how to improve that process. And for me, that made it enough. Yeah. If I would have had to go entirely away from it, I would have had a problem. Yeah. But because I can actually study it directly or, or at least study how people learn to prepare for that environment, it's really a, a, a blessing. It's a good opportunity for me. So I, I, uh, I feel yeah privileged to be in this position. Yeah. You're getting the best of both worlds. Exactly. Yeah. So let's unpack Let's well, let's get an understanding what health professions education really means. Then can you do that? Yeah, I think you know it's evolving. Obviously, and my version will be very different from other people who you would ask. But it it is a field that is aiming to try to understand how healthcare practitioners learn to learn, how we can work with them, not as a unique. So they're not some special type of learner. We're all humans, mm-hmm. but they're learning a very special type of content area in a very special kind of context where there are time pressures, resource pressures, people's lives are at risk. And so knowing that all these important variables are layered on top of education makes it this, this niche area that's really unique because yeah, again, broader education people would say, Oh, there's nothing special about that, but there is Mm -hmm. for these factors, you know, in education, if you don't finish the test, no one dies. Uh, Whereas in health professions that that is unfortunately one of the things that are on the table and so really what it is is acknowledging that education is happening in this special context and trying to understand issues of power issues from social sciences from psychology and how people learn and now with these efficiency and time constraint concerns how do we how do we study the learning in that kind of environment mm-hmm. and and layering in the health system and how people learn to navigate a system coming from one system to another system or even from one hospital to another hospital in the same city like yeah. there's just so many interesting variables so really encapsulating all of that health professions education is a, it's not a discipline it's a field where a number of def- disciplines come together in an interdisciplinary way to understand the multitude of factors that are affecting education in this specialized context for this type of uh, professional. And now we typically study medical professionals for a variety of reasons that yeah. we don't really need to get into. Uh, but we are very open and interested in all healthcare professionals, yeah. nurses, respiratory therapists, anesthesia assistants, like everyone is a participant group that we are keen to study. Um, and it's just about making opportunities to study them closely. Hey everyone, it's Erin. I'm going to take you through the history of simulation today and how it found its place in healthcare. In its broadest terms, simulation can be thought of as an imitation of some real thing or process in order to be able to study or train certain skills. When we think of it this way, we can recognize simulation throughout many human endeavors, which can be dated back centuries. Now I'm sure we're all familiar with the game of chess. Did you know that this popular game originated as a way of military simulation to represent war gaming and to allow knights to hone their skills in their battlefield? Let's take a look at the aviation industry as another example. Since the first flight simulator called the Blue Box was invented by Edwin Albert Link in 1929, flight simulation has been crucial for training and evaluation in the advancement of the modern aviation industry, including military, civilian, and transportation aviation. So then, what seems to be the common thread between all of these endeavors? It seems that the success of simulation in all of these areas ultimately lies in its ability to provide an opportunity to test and train in a controlled, reproducible, and safe environment that would otherwise be too expensive or risky to do in the real world. So with this in mind, it then becomes much clearer as to why simulation has been applied into the realm of medical education and healthcare. 
In its modern application, simulation in healthcare uses either real, virtual, or a combination of the two reality systems to provide a standardized, reproducible, and patient-free environment for training, learning, and assessment. And to get a better sense of how this work is actually carried out, Jabir and I had the opportunity last week to visit the Allen Waters Family Simulation Center located at the Li Keqing Knowledge Institute, and we met with the simulation team working there. We had so much fun chatting with this amazing group, and it will be easy for you to see why as you hear from them. Kristen, one of the simulation educators here, and Gerhard, the emergency medicine resident currently doing an elective at the Sim Center, told us a bit more about which area of healthcare simulation stemmed from and where it has cascaded from there. Yeah, so I'm Kristen. I'm one of the simulation educators here. Uh, I think it was actually anesthesia who was the first group of physicians who took on and really tried to translate the, I think it was crew resource management that aviation came up with to address these teamwork issues, and he translated that into crisis resource management. So it was Dr. Gaba uh, translated that for anesthesia because he felt that um, anesthetists, particularly like pilots, you have a lot of downtime, a lot of really boring, monotonous work, and then you have moments of extreme crisis. And so he really found that translation that way. And my name's Gerhard. I'm one of the emergency medicine residents. Uh, I'm quite new to the field, but from what I understand is that initially in anesthesia, part of the training was that you wanted to have a chance for new learners to practice very rare but critical uh, incidents that they might uh, come upon in the hospital but not have to practice on real patients. And so that obviously translated to fields like emergency medicine, pediatrics, and things like that. From there, I think we realized that we should probably try to simulate real working uh, conditions. So we started adding more interprofessional things. Now we've translated to the real work environment. So we do simulations inside the hospitals. And now I think it's gone even beyond that to the point where we're evaluating spaces and equipment to see how the team functions within the system itself. As you just heard, there truly is a wide range of applications of SIM in healthcare, which may or may not be what you expected. A common misconception that even I had previous to our experience working on this episode was that simulation focused on practicing certain skills. And although that is part of it, that also only scratches the surface of what SIM can allow you to do. Hentley, one of the simulation specialists here, and Kristen and Gerhard delve into some other common misconceptions they frequently encounter in here and how they've addressed these in the past. Uh, my name is Hentley. I'm a simulation specialist as well. Uh, I would say that one of the things about sim is obviously you're not working on a real patient. It's a mannequin. It's a piece of plastic. But you have to create a setting to make sure that there's buy-in. And what, what we found, at least in my experience, is that once you, you have one person kind of buys in, then everybody else buys in because they don't want to be that person who's not, you know, who's like, oh, I don't believe this or whatever type of stuff. Everybody just kind of gets into it, right? And they know that, I mean, they, even if they're afraid of it or intimidated by it, they're still, they know that there's value in it and it's, it's important. And I think that um, even if there's a little bit of hesitation with Sim at the beginning, they end up uh, uh, buying in and just kind of understanding that there is a lot of value with Sim. Yeah, just a couple of other misconceptions that I've uh, seen in my time here. A lot of people seem to think that the fidelity or the or the realism of the situation depends on the technology itself, which is not necessarily the case at all. Uh, we've proven and other researchers have proven that you can learn very complicated technical skills with very simple equipment. You don't always need very expensive technology. So that's one misconception. The other one is that people think the simulation itself is the tool that's going to help them learn something as opposed to using it for their own objectives. They think that just because they're doing the simulation, that's going to be the end in itself. 
but really the simulation is one tool uh, out of many other educational tools which will help you achieve a certain objective whether that's testing a product a facility learning how to test people how to educate and so on i'd say another one is just the idea that it's all about the skills so you can learn a technical skill and that's fantastic and sometimes you will need that but a lot of the non-technical skills are far more transferable and I really enjoy the simulations we have where someone gets really caught up on the medicine and it's not about the medicine at all. Before I get into this question, just for our listeners, be sure to check out episode 27 with Dr. Schiffer Ginsberg, where we also discuss medical professionalism. Uh, so it's another field within medical education that we talked about on the show. So back to you in, in simulation, what's your process like? for putting these simulations together, because I can only imagine how much thought that goes into it. Not only do you have to you know, think about or consider the educational needs, mm. right? You have to kind of define your learning objectives, like what are you really trying to achieve? And, and all these other factors, of course, we'll get into, and namely, and what I've come across a lot is fidelity. So how real you know, is this simulation to mm. what happens in real life? In clinical care so how do you even get started you know and how long does it take to get a simulation together (laughs) well it is variable it depends but I think I have two areas that I or two ways that I uh, conduct my research I think this will help clarify the question so on one side we are interested in learning and the mechanisms of learning. So it's almost like a basic science lab. Mm -hmm. So in that way, simulation is a means for me to study something. It's a controlled environment. I don't worry about harming patients. Uh, So we're, we're creating a representation of the clinical experience, some part of it for the purpose of training or assessment, usually both. And there we look to find a model. So an example would be a PhD student working with me, Jeffrey Chung. He is he has a, a model of lumbar puncture. Mm-hmm. And that model actually allows us to manipulate a lot of important variables around the concepts and the procedures that people are learning to do that procedure. So it's become, in his words, and I agree completely, it's his mouse model. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not exactly the same, but yeah. it's the same kind of concept. It, like he, he has this model, he can manipulate it in different ways. Mm-hmm. And and then study how people learn in those different conditions. So that's what we do on one hand with SIM. And in that, in those cases, we're more interested in the models and in, in their capabilities and what we can do with them, how flexible they are, and, and focus in on those mechanisms that we're studying. So there we're matching uh, what we wish to manipulate and the mechanisms of learning to the, to the simulator. Uh, and so those don't take as much time to set up as the other arms. Yeah. So the other arm that I'll talk about is the more applied arm of my research where we are interested in how we can either assess whether people are prepared for the clinical environment using simulation Mm -hmm. or at least design training experiences that prepare them for the clinical environment. Okay. In those cases, the sim does take longer Yeah. because I need and rely on and think it's very important that I have clinical partners as a part of the work. And so I would approach a clinician in, in that area usually multiple professionals actually because Mm -hmm. often sim is about team yeah Uh, just training physicians makes no sense because they don't work alone in the hospital sure and so coordinating all of the appropriate team members to be involved and then making decisions like should the simulation be in the simulation center where we do have more control but it is artificial Mm -hmm. versus and that's why i took on the role at saint mike's and fortunately they took me on as well so i'm at saint michael's hospital with the alan waters family simulation center and they do simulation in the hospital it's called in situ simulation and the idea that is that you're having people practice away from real patients but in the natural healthcare setting 
okay. so that this, the system is responding and being stressed in its natural conditions. Mm-hmm. And the benefits of that are that people know where the equipment is and are using the equipment that they typically use. And we might find pinch points or problems in the way things are set up mm-hmm. or in the way that people are called. Okay. And so that simulation as the object of research rather than the means. So now it becomes, how can we use this notion of simulation either in the artificial setting of the sim center or in the real setting of the hospital to accomplish the objectives that we're interested in? Okay, sweet, <laughs> sweet. All right, so you published quite a bit on simulation as a means to assess competency when it comes to procedural skills. You know, again, doing a little bit digging and research, I found that, you know, there's not really a consensus on what the term competency means, especially in clinical care. So one, I was hoping you, you know, share your thoughts on that. And two, how do you even decide on the skills Mm -hmm. to be evaluated on? So I'll start with the, the idea. So the idea is that there are competencies that physicians can be measured on that represent what it is to be an excellent, high-functioning physician. And this isn't just doctors. We're t- we'll talk about it as doctors, but other fields, nursing has been doing competency-based for ver- uh, quite some time. But it's just really starting to take hold with the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, and they have a competency-by-design model that they're implementing. And so I don't think there's one universal definition of competence actually yeah Uh, and I wouldn't I wouldn't offer one myself I think and that's not a cop-out because I think there's so many different components the way it's being offered in Canada is in with the CanMeds or the the competence by design model which I'll refer to as CBD if I go into that language is entrustable professional activities so it's framed more as is someone able to do this thing this activity well enough that we can trust them to do that on their own Mm -hmm. or in a graduated system, do that with supervision first and then eventually on their own. But ultimately you asked, how are they decided on? Like who decides what skills get measured or not? And and actually it is groups of people within every specialty and they create these EPAs or entrustable professional activities Mm -hmm. uh, within this model. And so the Royal College convenes them, they all get together They write out these lists and decide and decree in a lot of ways, you know, in the earlier stages of training, these are the EPAs people need to, as they're transitioning into the discipline, as they're transitioning into more specialized disciplines. So from general internal medicine to cardiology, now there's a new set of Mm -hmm. EPAs. And then as they transition from being trainees to now practitioners and have been licensed, there's a set of EPAs to facilitate that transition. And so it's a nice model because it's developmental and it's, it's good because it's based in activity rather than perhaps what could be an intangible thing like competence. Yeah. Like what does that even look like? Yeah. Well, that's what it looks like here to do a history and, and physical exam, for yeah. example. And so actually it's the clinicians and, and specialists who have defined these for their field. And then now my job as, as an education scientist uh, related to these clinical departments is to say, okay, what tools do we have to measure these things uh, and, and to be sure that we're making good decisions about this entrustability and where do we do it? Mm-hmm. So in some cases it's the workplace, but in other cases it would be like, oh, you know what, that's going to interrupt patient flow and that's problematic. The simulation might be a good place to, yeah. to actually study that. And so let's measure it over there in the mm-hmm. sim environment. Well. You can tell us about some of the work you've been doing specifically in this procedure skills. Sure. So uh, I 
I have chosen bedside invasive procedures like lumbar puncture. There are things like thoracentesis, paracentesis. I tell people essentially what they are is putting a needle into the body to take fluid out okay. in different compartments across our bodies. Yeah. The reason that I'm interested in those is procedures are probably around in some reviews, like the third leading cause of adverse events, whether it be complications from the procedure in the moment or infection later on. And so while they're not the highest, like they're not drug related or operating room or communication breakdowns, those are definitely the most important um, for us to be studying and sorting out. Procedures do contribute to these adverse events. I was particularly interested in, well, how are we training people? Uh, to accomplish these because they are listed as core competencies in American organizations and in the Canadian organizations. And, you know, I think probably worldwide as well, but not as formally, at least in what I've seen. So I chose procedures also. So that's that's like the, the healthcare system rationale. The other mm. is as uh, often I would describe myself as an experimentalist. So I'm interested in uh, when I manipulate variables, I want to know that when I measure the outcome, that it's not that my measurement is problematic and that, oh, maybe there is a difference between these groups, but yeah. my tool is not performing well. I want that to be solid so that I know if there's no difference, it's because the manipulation did not lead to a difference. Mm -hmm. And so fortunately, the assessment tools have solid validity evidence for, for them showing that they are favorable, meaning we can measure procedural skills well particularly in simulation. And so now I know I have a robust measure mm -hmm. and I know that these are important skills and that's why I've studied procedures so much. Now, the one study that we did was we looked at how people have trained and ultimately at the end of it, we realized that across the reported literature, the training interventions for procedures are so variable that we probably aren't training everyone up to the same level of competence mm -hmm. and studies that the way that competence is measured is very variable. Uh, and so ultimately what we suggested is that we focus on training a core of individuals who are the proceduralists uh -huh. in any kind of hospital system, rather than saying everyone needs to be competent. No, we have a group of people who are and who can train others who need to be in the future. Proceduralist, you mean people who... People uh, who do the procedures in the hospital. Okay. Uh, and, and so rather than presuming every physician who comes out of training is going to be capable of these procedures, because honestly, they're not. Yeah. Uh, and, and the healthcare system can't, or the, the training system can't really afford getting everyone up to speed. There's not enough time mm -hmm. or opportunity. Yeah. And so concentrating our resources and the, the language we used is rather than calling it a core competency that everyone must have, we train a competent core of individuals who can carry the load and be, be the proceduralists. And we do that with simulation. We do that with workplace-based training. And that will require a change in how we offer education and how we utilize simulation resources. And so our plan coming off of that, that was a uh, systematic review and actually realist synthesis, not a meta-analysis like mm -hmm. many people would expect. What's a realist synthesis? So there we were, one, we were interested in, um, you look at what's called the context mechanism outcome chain and trying to understand the mechanisms of interventions, how they link to the specific context in which they're offered, and the outcomes that are produced. Yeah. So I could run the same intervention in one hospital, and because the next hospital has a very different context, let's say it's different champions, different interactions of healthcare systems and healthcare workers, that same intervention would play out very differently and produce very different outcomes based mm -hmm. on that context. And so we were using this lens to better understand like why interventions seem to fail and succeed, even though it was the same thing, but, but perform very differently in different environments. 
So it's a very helpful, it's a very qualitative uh, way to do synthesis. So it was a challenge for me as yeah. an experimentalist. <laughs> uh, but I fortunately had a great colleagues and a good team to help me work that work through that. Yeah. But really, all, all of that was to say, we, we've formulated this opinion that the model of saying everyone should be competent probably is not sustainable or attainable. Mm -hmm. And so what would a model of this competent core and flipping the words and kind of being cheeky, but, yeah. but thinking about that as, as a new concept, what would that look like? And so now that's going to be our next project where we, again, are confident that our outcomes are, are strong and our assessment tools are going to work well. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to implement new models of care in, in different hospitals and new models of training yeah. and look at the process by which that can happen or, or, or not. Yeah. I'm a realist in yeah. a lot of senses, like it may not work. Yeah. And ultimately, does it produce better doctors when we have this more focused training system? Good okay. question. And it's around procedures and procedures are just the prototype. We need to do this with all of the different skills like communication. Yeah like the, the uh, drug dosage errors that happen at, and create more adverse events than the procedures, but the procedures are a nice base to start with. For sure. Taking in what Dr. Bridges just talked about with regards to assessing procedural skills through SIM, I asked the SIM team to take me through some more case examples from their own experiences of SIM innovations that weren't as focused on technical skills. Here's what they had to say. My name is Sue. I'm a simulation specialist. I've been at the Allen Waters Family Simulation Center since 2013. Um, and this this was a, a really great um, a sim where spiritual care practitioners would come down and they would practice end-of-life conversations, those really difficult conversations to have with patients and their families. So we would have them in a, like in a bedside situation. They'd be talking to a patient and just trying to have that difficult conversation. So it's it's not pleasant, but it has to happen, and, and it's just nice to practice um, in a, in a non-stressful environment. I guess I can share an example. It sort of blends um, a technical and a non-technical skill. So we had a group of um, cardiac nurses down, and we built a really interesting model. So it's a simulated model where you can actually cut through skin, open up the chest of someone who's recently had heart surgery, their ribs are um, wired together as they would be after surgery, so the nurses have to cut their ribs open, pry them back open, and it's a patient who's in an arrest but needs an internal defibrillation. So instead of shocking the patient outside, they're actually shocking directly on the heart. So we um, trained a, a group of nurses on this. Of course, they hadn't seen it before, and then a few weeks later, this event happened in the hospital and the medical team that was caring for the patient didn't know what to do. They hadn't seen it. And this nurse said, I just learned this. We need to open the chest. And the residents listened. They opened the chest. They defibrillated and they saved his life. Um, and it was so amazing that that story got back to us. You know, I just learned this in the Sim Center like two or three weeks ago. One of the main elements of this job is being able to adequately debrief a simulation. Uh, and unfortunately, it is not intuitive and it's something that takes quite a bit of practice. So... Uh, when myself and my colleague Christine were hired into this role uh, just under a year ago, uh, they wanted, they didn't just want to hear us say we could do it and believe us, they wanted to see it. And because we're a sim center, they made that happen. So uh, my colleagues here, Sue and Hentley, were participating in some CPR, and Sue was an experienced nurse, um, very opinionated, and unfortunately she uh, was trained incorrectly in how to do CPR. Let's be clear, I was playing a role. 
and Hentley was a newer staff member who had just gone through CPR training and knew how to do it, but Sue was telling him he was wrong, and she knew better because she was more experienced. And so they ran the sim for, I don't know, maybe five minutes. Uh, the biggest challenge was, and I believe this was set up against us, that Hentley was not particularly conversational in this debrief, and that's an inherent challenge in any debrief. You always get the shy learners who don't want to say anything. Uh, and so really trying to let them come out and let them have their moment to shine uh, so that some of the more outgoing and potentially overbearing uh, team members aren't taking over and uh, that can be a really big learning experience for them. I think these three examples that were just shared really highlight the evolution from what we traditionally think of in sim into the breadth of what we can use it for nowadays. From simulating end-of-life conversations in spiritual care to translating the experience of learning a specific skill into a teaching moment for others to experiencing sim as part of the hiring process. In addition to these, SIM can also be used as part of preparedness training. And Ashley told us about a case around two years ago when Ebola was a big issue and St. Mike's was the designated hospital to take patients if there was an outbreak. So they transformed the whole SIM center into an Ebola preparedness training center, complete with fake walls, Ebola patient actors, full donning and doffing. On the flip side, we can also look at past cases that didn't go so well the first time. So we can replicate them to learn what could be done differently if it were to happen again. Just for our listeners, in this field of health professions, education, research, and in particular, healthcare simulation, if there's a concept or idea or you really want to test further, you know, who's on your team and why? Yeah. And so I think I remember giving this answer to you and I actually had talked about it recently with my lab group because they asked me like, Ryan, how do you build a program of research? <laughs> um, and you know, everyone has a different approach, but mine, so I'll start with a project and then see, you'll see how the team evolves around it. So what I always, because I have been fortunate to learn the skills of knowledge synthesis uh, and I'm still learning, uh, mm -hmm. there's so many different ways to do it and ways to build different teams. But I've realized that, yeah, to really tackle something and to produce the evidence base for yourself to say like, what, what is going on out there right now? And, and what can I learn from that? How can I justify and sell this, the story or the, the projects or the program that I plan to implement? I think really you need to do a knowledge synthesis of yeah. some kind. And so we're all used to doing literature reviews, but I think you need to be more systematic if you really want to convince the CIHRs and other groups to fund you. And so one member is, is now a mainstay, which is an information specialist or a research librarian. I think yeah. they're really important and they, they help you hone and they ask you tough questions. And yeah. you're just like, wow, I didn't think about that. <laughs> um, and they help you particularly make sure that you're looking at the right part of the literature. Mm -hmm. Now you don't have to be hugely systematic every time, but even they can give you precision searching, like quicker searches that get you to the the 10 papers in your field that you really want to find yeah. quickly. So they're they're a hugely important resource. So that that kind of helps me get a lay of the land. I think a student is really important yeah. because they're motivated, they yeah. want to learn, uh, the curiosity you all bring is yeah. is super key. So certainly having a student or students on the team is key for me. And then I've said it before, it's all about my clinical colleagues. Without them, I cannot get the work done. I cannot make it relevant to the bedside. As they say, the person in the trenches doing the clinical work. I mean, this is all about them. And so, and, and how they interface with their patients, how they interface with their trainees, mm -hmm. with each other. And so if we don't get their perspective on projects, we're producing something that could be very artificial, even mm -hmm. though we think it's not. Yeah. Uh, so getting beyond that, I think you need a clinician and clinicians. So if it's in an environment that you want multiple perspectives and you got to go after the nurse champion as well as the physician and not just one or the other. Yeah. So that's something to consider as well. And then, yeah, I've been fortunate where 
I, st- I, in thinking about it as a program of research, it's about getting people on the team who can help you build the next project. And usually that means someone who doesn't do what I do. So I'm an experimentalist, as I've said, I think I need a qualitative researcher. Uh, so they can think about my problem in a unique way because it's experimentalist usually initially. Yeah. And they can say, you know what, these are all the limitations that you had in doing it the way you just did. And then that means I can say, okay, so how would you design the next study? Yeah. And then we do the next study according to their paradigm. And it becomes what my colleagues have coined is a mixed method program of research rather than a mixed method study. Mm-hmm. And I really like thinking about it programmatically like yeah. that. So having someone like that on the team is super key. And then I start to think about the health system. So, you know, again, St. Mike's is so rich with uh, research resources. I'm sure other hospitals are too, but St. Mike's is great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll make that plug. Uh, and, and so they have like the applied health research group. They have the economic evaluation group. And so now I can start to pull in people who understand the system better than I do, especially working out of education and moving into like, how is my educational system impacting care? Mm. And what do I have to consider? And what am I going to get wrong? Or what is not going to work if I don't talk to the right people? And so someone from an applied field or from the, the cost effectiveness analysis unit would be amazing to be on my team. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and then finally, this doesn't need to be every project, but it's it's key, I think, for, for everyone out there to think about if you are going to be working in an applied field, yes, it's important to work with the frontline people and professionals, but also who are the people who are helping set the mandates, uh, who are more of the leaders or part of the organizations. Like I mentioned, the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. I was fortunate enough to be working with Kevin Emery, who was the president-elect of the whole Mm. organization, which is amazing for him and amazing for me to connect with him. But someone who has that oversight and in essence is a knowledge user, where you're saying, especially for a systematic review, you'd say, okay, eventually this is supposed to help change practice in a hospital, but also for the people who are telling the hospitals and the training systems what to do. Yeah, well, that's the regulatory, journey, yeah. that's the regulatory group. And so having them on board to, to advise on the realities of, of their lives and the pressures and, and factors to consider from their perspective, super important. So yeah, you can see I'm pretty multidisciplinary yeah. and that doesn't need to be every project, but yeah. I do think one of the things that's really overlooked is the information specialist yeah. and people are learning that uh, the benefits of that, no, for uh, sure. that kind of uh, partnership. Sounds like you've been thinking a lot about this. <laughs> that sounds also like a wicked team. And I guess before we wrap up in terms of like simulation, one thing again, I did bring up and I've been thinking a lot about was, you know, there's this concept of see one, do one, teach one, mm-hmm. right. And bringing simulation into the picture there. Are we at a point where, you know, simulation is used, you know, not only to learn, but also someone who uses simulation will be able to teach that task? Because when I'm when I'm a a teaching assistant or I'm responsible for someone else's learning, there's a lot more work that goes into, you know, what I have to do. And because I'm not or if I can get this right or wrong, it's fine. But when I'm accountable for 30 students or something, my whole mindset changes, the mm-hmm. way I prepare, my focus, etc. So are we at a point or does simulation also kind of prepare someone to teach that task? I do think it's both. Yeah, uh, I really do. But obviously, just like any kind of teaching, whether you want to be teaching in that environment, yeah. whether that's an area, but but the benefits that you're talking about of, you know, there's nothing, there's no better way to learn something than to have to teach it right? yeah. and be to be in that position of accountability. And I think 
simulation is a nice venue that we haven't necessarily taken advantage of because, and this isn't a criticism of the different sim centers, uh, it's a bit of a logistical and resource issue that in a lot of cases you just get whoever can you can get to come mm. and teach. And so thinking about it in the more formal way like you're describing of of simulation becoming a place where people learn to teach and also through that are learning to learn and becoming more educationalists. I think that that could use a lot of formal structure yeah. and actually quite a bit of research. Like people have been doing, makes a weird acronym, which is RATS, like residents as teachers. Uh-huh. So those kinds of studies have been done, but not in a structured way and not specific to simulation. Yeah. So I think it's a good opportunity in a growth area, actually. Yeah. Like what... Because there are going to be new teaching rules. Yeah. Uh, there really are uh, in in the healthcare system going forward with the implementation of competency by design, with the requirements of more assessments, mm-hmm. like coaching rules. Yeah. There's going to be people who probably are primarily assessors. Um, they're going to be the teachers who are like yeah. in a partnership with the trainees, but only in a short period of time. Yeah. Coaches who are in a more longitudinal one when I say coaches. And so SIM could be a place where they learn the skills to do those roles well. Mm-hmm. But that's not been studied. So it's a, it's a important insight that, you, that you're sharing. And yeah. I think if people are interested in medical education and, and applying the science that we have from education to this kind of relationship of uh, building teachers and, and how they do that and how they do that with each other mm-hmm. as teacher. Oh, there's so many different questions that could be yeah. asked. So one of the highlights for me in that conversation was seeing you go through a simulation that you weren't really aware of. So can you kind of set the context on what was happening. It initially started as a tour. We just wrapped up. Well, yeah, so like you said, we were just walking around this theater room and Ashley was showing me the different mannequins and we got to the main one that was on the operating table. And then all of a sudden, there was this strange sound coming from him. And then she goes, hi, Joe. And he goes, hi. And he told us about how he's not feeling well and he's feeling a little nauseous. And I was so taken aback because I was not expecting a voice. Um, Then at one point, Ashley was like, feel for his pulse. And so I think at this point, um, we realized that there was no pulse and that he had arrested. And so she's like, okay, well, we got to start doing compressions. We got to do CPR. And after a few seconds, Gerhard emerges from the back room and he's like, do you need help in here? And then he begs um, the patient and it started to get really intense. And I saw you in the corner of my eye rotating around us trying to take this video. And I wasn't quite sure whether to laugh or whether to be serious. And then it kind of escalated from there and Gerhard intubated him. And then at some point he returned. But there were other... It was so realistic, and it seemed that we became more and more immersed in the situation after, as as the um, scenario played on for a few minutes, and even to the point where we had to call Code Blue, and there was phones ringing, and so many loud beeping noises everywhere, but yeah, it was a really, really neat experience. It was something that um, we definitely did not expect, I don't think. We thought we were just going on a really innocent tour of the facilities and we didn't realize that an actual simulation was going to take place but it was really really cool and then we get to the back room and of course Hentley was doing all the voices and and they were just definitely playing along and having fun with it and probably laughing at us but um yeah no it was very very neat so that was your experience and then you ended up asking Gerhardt about you know what it's like being a medical a resident emergency resident physician and being on the front line of simulation education and research. 
and you asked him to kind of speak on his experience, what his perceptions were. Yeah, so I think um, I've seen the positive change in that it's happening earlier and earlier every year in medical school. We're exposed to standardized patients very early on in our education. Uh, like I said, one of the misconceptions is that because they're real patients and they're not mannequins, it's not necessarily simulation, but it definitely is. Uh, as we move forward, we start doing more things in teams, and oftentimes there will be researchers also evaluating us and uh, testing their own tools. Um, but usually they save those for uh, people who are more comfortable in difficult situations. But I personally find it very helpful because, again, emergency medicine, there's a lot of situations when you're put on the spot, when you're expected to know how to handle things that you don't see very often, um, when the patients can be very difficult, and you don't want to face those situations for the first time in real life. Um, and the same goes for difficult colleagues, um, for settings that you've never seen before or using equipment you've never seen before. And being here, I've also learned the educational principles of doing this and why it's helpful. Uh, and so I try to convey that to my colleagues as well. Given all we've talked about so far and to wrap up our conversation with the SIM team, I decided to ask them about their takes on what the future of SIM holds. Now, of course, there isn't one straightforward answer, particularly because we're entering into such an exciting and complex era of simulation in healthcare. But some elements of the future state of this field include the extreme push for patient safety by actually tracking simulations that are done and showing their measurable impacts, as well as the increasing integration of technologies such as 3D printers and virtual reality. What I would like to see moving forward is if we can add another perspective, which is that of the patient. Uh, we obviously invite different professionals here to tell us how things look from a nurse, nursing perspective, administrative perspective, any type of professional who wants to use our uh, tools. But I actually would love to hear patients being involved in what they feel are needs uh, where they see uh, physicians, for example, needing to be trained and helping design specific scenarios and giving us feedback in the debriefs about how we did. I think that would be interesting and something I haven't seen yet. That's a great point. Um, our mission in the Sim Center is that we want to improve patient care and we don't hear from patients. So I think that is the missing gap. So hopefully we will see more of that in the future. The other piece, uh, Future Forward, we're talking a lot about collaborative learning. It's kind of a hot ticket item. So um, when we bring in a group, for example, of emergency residents and they're working together, in real life, they don't work in isolation. They're working with nurses, respiratory therapists, all these different professionals. So we need to train together to actually learn how to work together. Um, so we're thinking of ways to actually empower that because the difference in scheduling and getting people all down here at the same time is really tough and pulling them away from patients can obviously is a big concern so um, we're hoping to integrate that a lot more um, as we're able to. Well that sums it up. Thank you so much to the wonderful team at the Allen Waters Family Simulation Center. Sue, Hentley, Kristen, Ashley and Gerhard for warmly welcoming Jabir and I to come in and tour the center with an additional surprise simulation in the middle of the tour, which we certainly were not expecting, but ended up being an incredible experience nonetheless, and for taking the time to sit down with us to share their own experiences and insights. We definitely look forward to coming back to visit in the future. So take it in your Twitter feed, and I'm going to bring up your pinned tweet because I want to know the story you know, behind it, you know, the implication as well. But let me just read it, read it out for our listeners. By the way, okay. it's at our bridges. Bridges, B-R-Y-D-G-E-S. And that's, <laughs> that's you. So let me just read this out because yeah. I want to you know, get to know what, what, you th what you were thinking about. So here it goes. Noticing so many med-ed researchers want to have their own theory, let's remember to recognize, value, and use the learnings from our past. Yeah, I mean, 
This is a plug for the Wilson Center. Working here has been such a great experience where because the it's very interdisciplinary, there's social scientists to psychometricians to cognitive psychologists. Uh, and I grew up here and, and started to learn the value of theoretical thinking and, and relying on theories and concepts and principles like all researchers learn uh, to do through formal training. And so we're very privileged to have gone through that formal training and to learn that how important theories are and to work with and understand the historical trajectory. Mm-hmm. Like people don't say, just use the 2017 paper to, to, to do your citations and you're done. It's like, <laughs> no, that idea was formed in 72 and yeah. then someone refined it in 99 and, and so on. And, and understanding that trajectory is really important. And fortunately, again, graduate school training gives us that relationship to theory and helps us understand its value. And, and like Kurt Levin, there's uh, nothing as practical as a good theory. I mm-hmm. buy that. And so I, the, the thing that pr- promoted this tweet is in health professions education, there are a lot of clinicians who don't have that clinical or that graduate school training in education. Mm-hmm. Man, they've done a lot of education. So yeah. I am not critiquing any yeah. physicians by yeah. any means. You've done a lot of work. But, but what am I, I am saying is they haven't worked with the education science and theories as well. And often what that leads to is uh, sometimes they'll propose a project uh, or, or be presenting a project and propose their own theory. Like, oh, look, I've, I've found this mechanism and it's, it's kind of mm-hmm. new. It's, mm-hmm. it's my thing. Yeah. And they offer it that way. And it's like, no, no, there's do that. an established <laughs> literature on this, actually. And unfortunately, they haven't been exposed to that for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it was like, OK, just remember, don't look, don't always say it's your own theory, because my biggest lesson, I'll, I'll joke, uh, for my Ph.D., I came up with, I, I was studying self-regulated learning. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was studying. But for some, and there's a rich history and tradition in that. But for some reason, I felt like I needed to call it self-guided learning. <laughs> so I called it self-guided <laughs> learning in my PhD. And then I, I, I thought, you know what? I'm studying actually how we can direct that process and design that for trainees. So I called it directed self-guided learning. Yeah. And I thought, this is unique. This is my own thing. And then... Right after I defended my PhD, it went well, thankfully. Yeah. I read I read a paper that was called Guided Self-Directed Learning. It was two <laughs> words flipped. It's the exact same idea. Yeah. I didn't cite it because we both felt like we needed to create our own terms. Wow. What does that lead to? It leads us to, uh, to miss each other's work. It leads to a disjointed literature. Mm-hmm. And that's really problematic. And yeah. so this, th- this tweet is telling me and telling all of us as researchers to your listeners it's important for us to remember what others have done and to recognize I'm probably not entirely unique. I'm tweaking on an idea rather than creating an idea. Mm-hmm. And isn't that lovely that we yeah. have this system by which we've done that, but mm-hmm. don't forget that that's the reality rather than you're always innovating. And we feel yeah. pressures to try to represent ourselves as new and novel. Yeah. No, it's fine. Yeah. You're working with the ideas of others and making that incremental contribution to mm-hmm. science and that's how science rolls yeah so wow that's no. where it comes from okay our last question so for our listeners like those who are listening to this podcast whenever they decide to listen to it if there's a few takeaways you would want to share you know about simulation-based research you know what what do you want them to take away from this episode well one thing is simulation is not the solution it's, it's one modality and a sea of modalities that we have for training healthcare professionals. And it's an expensive resource. So I, I think it's, it's important and incumbent on us to study it in, in, in a way to understand how best to use it. 
not just to use it and just because it's flashy and it's mm-hmm. tech and it's uh, it's fun at times and that's great and it is but ultimately we have to be mindful that it is an expensive resource and a constrained system and we need need to use that well and so people who are interested in coming in and studying it I'd like that to be the mindset that we have to think about it as like it's a, a unsustainable resource, just like everything else. And how do we use it in a sustainable way? So that's a big one. And then the other one is uh, there's such an opportunity now for us to study how simulation integrates with the healthcare system. For example, when what can we measure in sim that we know and can be confident represents clinical practice and therefore we don't have to disrupt clinical practice to assess that anymore. We don't have actual clear answers on that. We're making assumptions and and following our intuitions and that's okay, but science should be and evidence should be what we follow. Uh, And so I think there's a lot of opportunities for us to do that too. And so uh, really sim is an exciting area. It's, it's, amazing to be able to work with the people that I do. There are so many different professionals that go into building a simulation. Um, and so come get to know the different sim centers across the city. There's so many, there's, there's a community looking to form right now. It's just limited to medicine, which is a limitation. Uh, we hope to grow it out to other healthcare, uh, professions and, and, um, the schools of those health disciplines. Uh, it's in the faculty of medicine right now, but the aim is to form collaborations amongst the sim centers that are scattered across the different hospitals and, and, uh, educational institutions in Toronto. So now is a really good time to get in for people who are interested in understanding and and sitting on the sideline of healthcare, not being the the healthcare providers, but wow, what an opportunity to actually study and learn what they do and Mm -hmm. and to be able to affect their process in some way. Uh, I, I take that as, yeah, a really good honor. So yeah, sim is sim is uh, limited, but it's also limitless yeah. in what we can do and the research that uh, needs to come in the future. So yeah, yeah plug for sim. Come there come join the ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it, man. Thank you so much, Doctor yeah, Bridges. Had an awesome time just chatting with you. Appreciate your time. Um, really quickly, where can people find you? How can they keep in touch with you? Yeah, well. I always welcome Twitter followers and messages on there. That's fun. Uh, but feel free to email me. My email is ryan.bridges at utoronto.ca. Uh, that's an easy way to connect with me. And uh, those of you who think about uh, health professions education more broadly, come talk to me because we like to hook each other up here at the Wilson Center. And in this community, it's it's small enough that we do all tend to know each other. So even if it's not simulation that you're interested in, but you're interested in education and health professions in some way, come, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy to be a conduit. Don't feel like uh, you can't talk to me about talking to someone else if, if you need a connection to be made. That's part of our job. All right. Yeah. Sweet. Well, there you have it, guys. Hope you enjoyed the show. Next episode, you'll hear from Dr. Shelley Walt a certified medical illustrator and assistant professor in the biomedical communications program at the University of Toronto. Here she is recounting the moment she decided to combine her passion for art and interest in science. I realized I'd, I'd spent all this time building up the arts and literature and that sort of side of life, but that I really had neglected something that is just as important and just as fascinating. And then when I entered the BMC program, it was like, oh yes, now I'm home. This is, this is a kind of complete diet. And some parting piece of advice. If you're thinking about a difficult challenge and you're stuck, try drawing a picture of it like we started, (laughs) as we started with today. Get out your crayons. See you in two weeks. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, Faculty of Medicine, or the university. 
To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. And I really enjoy the simulations we have where someone gets really caught up on the medicine and it's not about the medicine at all.